Welcome to Passion Church. For more information about Passion Church, please visit us online at www.passionchurch.tv. Now let's join the service already in progress. Thank you, Steve. Thank you very much. Uh, I'm the young one that's uh, been invited to come and start things. Uh, but it's great to be here. This is sort of our home church when we're in town. And uh, I think I'm here on average three or four times a year. Just sort of the nature of the beast. And, uh, and But uh, it's always good to be here. Bishop uh, Tunstall, thank you and Lou for being here. And, and for, for the bishop here and for Steve, you as the pastor of this church, thank you as a church for what this church and all the churches across the Heartland Conference have been doing in responding down in Moore. I've been blessed. Uh, normally, I'm not here when these things happen. So I'll call Susan and say, are you all right? And she'll say, yeah, I know how to deal with this. She said, you're the one who panics when you come in and say, what's that siren going off, you know? And uh, But uh, the thank, thank all of you for what you have done and continue to do. In fact, some of the folks were leaving after the first service telling me uh, they, they needed help back down there. So thank you so much for that. Uh, if you want to follow more about it, besides on the Passion, is it Passion.tv? Passionchurch.tv, besides your own website here. You can go to the denominational website, which is IPHC.org. IPHC.org. You can go there and keep up. There are a lot of videos on there about the last two weeks. Uh, if you, Those of you on Facebook, you can go to and like IPHC Ministries. IPHC Ministries is keeping up with a lot of things, and also uh, I keep up with a lot of the things going on as well at IPHC General Superintendent. IPHC General Superintendent. So if you go and like those, uh, they'll they'll keep you in the loop on what's going on there. Um, it's an honor to be with you, and uh, very appreciative uh, for really uh, the the 12 years I've really had the privilege to know uh, Steve. I had known him previously to, to that, had known of him, and we were acquaintances. For the four years we worked together in uh, discipleship ministries uh, uh, for this denomination, uh, one of the most, you, you guys are blessed. You've got one of the most gifted leaders and communicators in the entire Pentecostal Holiness Church. And blessings to you and his wife, uh, one of the best worship leaders in the movement. She'll be leading, uh, be in charge of the worship, and I think part of your team is as well at our general conference down in Dallas, Texas later in July. Looking forward to that. Um, if you will, turn in your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 61. I'm going to read from the uh, New King James uh, version of the Bible, and uh, I'm going to read the entire 11 verses to you and with you this morning. Hear the word of the Lord. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me to preach good tidings to the poor. He sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, to console those who mourn in Zion, to give them beauty for ashes, the oil of joy for mourning, 
the garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness, that they may be called trees of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. And they shall rebuild the old ruins. They shall raise up the former desolations, and they shall repair the ruined cities, the desolations of many generations. Strangers shall stand and feed your flocks, and the sons of the foreigners shall be your plowmen and your vine dressers. But you shall be named the priests of the Lord. They shall call you the servants of our God. You shall eat the riches of the Gentiles, and in their glory you shall boast. Instead of your shame, you shall have double honor. And instead of confusion, they shall rejoice in their portion. Therefore, in their land they shall possess double Everlasting joy shall be theirs. For I, the Lord, love justice. I hate robbery for burnt offering. I will direct their work in truth and will make with them an everlasting covenant. Their descendants shall be known among the Gentiles and their offspring among the people. All who see them shall acknowledge them, that they are the posterity whom the Lord has blessed. I will rejoice I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall be joyful in my God. For he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness. As a bridegroom decks himself with ornaments, and as a bride adorns herself with her jewels. For as the earth brings forth its bud, as the garden causes the things that are sown in it to spring forth, so the Lord God will cause righteousness and praise to spring up before all the nations. May the Lord bless the reading and the hearing of his word. Let's pray. We thank you, Holy Spirit, for your presence with us this morning. We thank you for your word. Lord, your word is life. Like the Apostle Peter in the Gospel of John, where else shall we go? You have, Lord, the words of life. And so I ask that your word here out of Isaiah 61, that your word will speak to us. Come and take my feeble effort to communicate. And in all of our hearts and minds, bring revelation, bring wisdom, bring understanding that only your spirit can bring and transform each of us. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. I want to speak to you on uh, the topic when they enter the land. We've all walked through the last uh, two weeks, uh, certainly from all accounts, uh, some of the most intensive storms in recent memory at least that have been a part of uh, the Oklahoma experience. And it, it seemed like at least up until yesterday that every day had a forbearing just in the atmosphere. Uh, something bad could happen again. I, uh, all of us, I'm sure we, we've learned what it was to turn our TVs on, pay attention to the various newscasts. And uh, my wife uh, has introduced me to We're All Gonna Die Mike. Uh, uh, she affectionately, well, perhaps not affectionately, but accurately calls him. And, uh, you know, we, we've lived within the realities of this. Many of you have been down there. You've either seen it on the news or you've been down there yourself. We know what it is that there are people who are dislocated 
who in an instant had been dislocated and who in recent days had been relocated. And no doubt many of those people, even though they've not been taken off to a foreign land, they feel like they are in exile from their homes. It's this sense of exile that's part of with this text. This portion of Isaiah, particularly beginning at chapter 40, moving up through actually most of Isaiah, uh, is a prophetic word to people who were going to go to exile. People who were going to leave their home city of Jerusalem and Judea. They were going to leave those cities and be taken off to Babylon where where they would be in exile for 70 years. And, and people who would, would have to come to terms with what it is to be dislocated and relocated when you didn't want, did not want to be. A disaster in this case, a disaster in Isaiah of, of Babylon as a conquering army coming in. And in that particular instance, clearly identified as an incident of the judgment of God. People taken away. And now... This is a promise to people who are going to come back. It's a promise that says the days of exile do have an end to them. Just as you have been relocated away from home, you're going to be, by the grace and the mercy of God, relocated again back to your home. And yet, when you go back home, it's never the same, is it? A lot of you who are younger folk that are here, you've either, you're either in college or you're getting ready to go to college, and whatever the case may be, once you've gone away from home, at that age of life and you come back, it's not quite the same. Thomas Wolfe talked about it a little bit in uh, his 1940 novel, uh, You Can't Go Home Again, where the main character, George Weber, a little bit different context in the story, but nonetheless goes back to his home and discovers that it's not the same, and he's not the same. And the people don't treat him the same. This sense of trying to find our way back from, from exile, whether it's one we chose if we went away or one that was imposed upon us by circumstances in life. And wanting to get back home. You know, we've actually been that way since Genesis chapter 3. Since the fall of Adam and Eve in the garden, when Adam and Eve were forced out by God, were forced out of that place of home, and God has blocked that place, we have all been trying to find our way back home. I think about that in terms of uh, Jesus. This particular text that I read to you from Isaiah 61, a lot of you are familiar with it from uh, uh, those same words being on the mouth of Jesus in Luke chapter 4. Verses 16 begins the whole account. And in verse 18 of Luke 4, Jesus quotes these words as he goes into the synagogue and opens up the text to Isaiah 61. And he begins to announce something to them. Those of you who saw it on the screen and perhaps in your Bible, you might have noticed that the personal pronoun in Isaiah 61 is capitalized, the me, because uh, it's understood to be messianic. It's understood to refer prophetically to Jesus. And you find then Jesus using this as his inaugural address, as it's sometimes called, at the beginning of his ministry, where Jesus stands up and, and reads this text. And, and he, he, he says to them that the Spirit of the Lord God is upon me. He has anointed me 
for all of these things. And then Jesus says to them, he closes the book, he says to them, this day, this text is fulfilled in your hearing. Well, if he was expecting cheers and adoration, which I don't believe he was, he didn't get it. He got rather, hey, who are you? You come back home, we know who you are. You're Joseph's, the carpenter's son. We saw you as a kid carrying wood. We saw you building that building over there. What do you mean? The anointing of the Lord is upon you. In fact, it was such a disruptive response as Jesus sat down and began to talk to them and explicate that further. Jesus, by the end, they're ready to kill him. In fact, they, they, they sweep him up in a mob and they take him to the edge of the city where there's a hill and they're ready to throw him off. But God intervenes and Jesus passes through them. Even in their anger, they could not yet lay their hands upon him. You cannot go home again, Jesus discovered. I thought about, though, this, this dynamic of Jesus as applying this text to himself and describing himself as the anointed one. There are two aspects of it that I, I want to draw to your attention for a few moments. One is the, the, the presence of the anointed one and the power of the anointed one. Now, as I think about this, we need to understand something. We need to understand that Jesus Christ is not the name that Jesus went by. The name Christ is not his last name. Jesus did not go to uh, the government offices and fill out a passport form. And when it said last name, Christ, first name, Jesus, little initial B for Ben, son of. He didn't do that. Christ is a title. Christ is a Greek word. Sort of trans, uh, that, that's tied into an, an English word that's, that's somewhat related to a Hebrew word of, of Messiah. Christ means Messiah. And Messiah means anointed one. It's a title. And, and so this understanding of who Jesus is, as he applies this, this reality of, of divine anointing upon himself as the word made flesh, as the son of God, as the son of man, as the savior, the redeemer of the world. He takes that upon himself because he knows that's who we, that is who he is from eternity. He was slain from the foundation of the world to come and be Israel's Messiah, Israel's savior, the redeemer not only of Israel, but for the whole globe. Everyone, Gentiles included. And, and so Jesus then comes with his presence into a people who did not understand him, who would not accept him, who questioned God about him. I found, like many of you, I found myself even asking over the last couple of weeks, God, how, how does this happen? Why do children get killed? Why, why is this home destroyed? And across the street, there's a home that, it, other than trash in the yard, nothing has happened to it. Anybody else got those questions? Where questions come to you, where is God in this? 
John uh, Yule Sr., who's the pastor over at the Crown Center, where all of this relief effort has been taking place, and a lot of you have been there. John mentioned uh, uh, a week or so ago that he got a call from someone in Oregon, somebody he didn't know, called the church because they had seen the sign on news and called the church and said, I want to ask you a question. He said, I went and looked at the pathway of the 1999 tornadoes and looked at the pathway of this tornado that's just hit in Moore. And he said, I noticed you're right in between and were not hit either time. Tell me why. That's a Homer Simpson moment. Duh. I mean, what do you say to something like that? And John answered him, really probably the best answer you could give is, I don't know why. All I know is that we're able to serve. I'd, I found myself sort of reflecting on this a little bit and running back to the Bible. And I'd, this is the only place I can find directly at least where Jesus talks about whether it's a, a violent kind of action caused by man or whether it's what we would call the accidents of, of, of human existence. And it's, in, it's the beginning of Luke 13. And Jesus is asking an interesting question. Some, some people come to him. And they're really asking a question about where's God in this? Okay, you claim to be. You claim to be the one who's the fulfillment of Isaiah 61. Where is God in this? And this is the question they posed to him. They said, what about these Galileans who were in the temple worshiping and Pilate six the Roman soldiers on those guys and kills them? And their blood gets mingled with the sacrifices they're, they're offering to God. Where's God in that? That's the implication of that question. And Jesus answers them and says, and doesn't answer them about the question of where is God. He answers them about where are you? Two different, two different questions. The question of where is God, no doubt Jesus could have answered it. Might have taken a little bit more than a Fox News soundbite. But, but he knew how to give that answer. But that's not the answer that would have changed their lives. The real question to them was, where are you? And it, that question comes forth out of what he says to them. He says, do you think that those Galileans were worse than any other Galileans because they're the ones who got killed? The implication of that is just because you survived, it doesn't mean you're better than they are. And the conclusion to that is repent. Jesus then further takes the initiative and moves beyond the act of violence, a question any of us and probably many of us ask with those children that were killed in Connecticut a few months ago. And now in the face of the, of the vicissitudes of life and in some respects because of the fallen nature of man and the fallen nature of our world in which we live, things that, that feel like they are capricious to us, like the wind coming down this street and not the next street. Jesus then says to them, what about the 18? who just recently were killed when a tower at Siloam in Jerusalem, when that tower collapsed. We don't know if it was a construction accident or, or something faulty, and people were walking by, and they just happened to be the ones who kissed their wife goodbye that morning and walking by the tower, and it falls, and 18 of them are killed. 
People are asking, where is God? And Jesus says, where are you? Do you think you are less guilty? That you're a better person than those 18? No, I tell you, repent. What Jesus is getting our attention about is, is that if you're going to really be in a position to serve someone and stand with them, you can't be there as someone who thinks you're better than they are. Even though we're redeemed by the grace of God, when we encounter that person who is lost, we're not better than they are. We stand with them because we share in the common lostness and frailty of human life. And it's out of that reality that we are then able, and this is the meaning of the language of repent, to consider the way we live and change what needs to be changed so that we can stand in the gap and really deal with the right issues that have to be dealt with in those moments of crises. That's that, that presence of the anointed one who comes and stands with us. Now, there's an extension that occurs from the singular of the anointed one to the reality of the anointed ones. Because following his resurrection and his ascension on high and the still preparatory work going on to when Jesus personally returns to this planet. Following that, Jesus by his Holy Spirit sends the reality of his spirit to birth his body on this planet. And it is his body, you and me, men and women redeemed by his grace who've experienced the love of God though we don't deserve it at all, that that we, he among us, right here in this place and around this globe, creates his body, who is his presence, his hands, his feet, his voice, his heart, his attitudes. We are his presence, and we are the manifestation of his power wherever we are, touching people and giving them hope and giving them a promise of the goodness of this God. It's out of that reality that this text begins to speak to us with some clarity. I, I, as I've read this text recently over, over the past week in particular, I, I really found myself intrigued by the issue of they. Because Jesus and, and, and Isaiah here shifts the, the language from the first person, me, to the third person, they. Who are the they's in this text and what happens to them but I thought about it here they are the, the they's are first of all the poor Jesus says that because of anointing the poor have something that's going to happen to them you know poverty is, is more than just a material reality poverty is a sense of hopelessness it's a sense of helplessness. You talk to people who are really bound in poverty, and it varies around the world. I've seen extreme poverty in southern Sudan, that, that Stone Age, something you, you and I can't even fathom to the fact of people who, who, who are physically poor in this society and where the poverty level is in our society, who, who, who are at that who would be rich in southern Sudan. But nonetheless, the reality is real. 
because it, because there's a relative value to that, and and who experience what it is to be powerless, who experience what it is to not have opportunity. See, that's one of the devastating effects of poverty, is that you lose opportunity. You you don't you don't you you, you lose your sense of dignity and value. He then talks about the brokenhearted. He says the brokenhearted. They they are people who who lose who lose their their inner self. Something is broken inside. And whenever something gets broken inside of us, it tends to be partly because of broken relationships. People are the most important gift God gives to us. Not money, not a house, not possession. I guarantee you every family who walked out of their house in more a week and a half ago, the first thing they thought about is, where's my wife? Where's my husband? Where are my children? And when they found them, they realized, you know, you can take everything away from me. I got those I love. Right? We all understand that. And, 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 and when, when we lose it, when there's a brokenness there, and, and the other part that goes to that brokenheartedness reality is the reality of a loss of truth. When there's, there's a disillusionment that occurs. Something or someone is not what we thought they were going to be for us. Or when we do that to someone else. I think about the, the reality of those who are the captives. Those who, and, and the language here really refers to to people as a whole out of this particular text who've been taken against their will and taken to Babylon and told, you know, you're going to be there for 70 years. Make the best of it. And people who are, uh, who, who are bound, bound in prison. That's the, that's the meaning of the language there. They are actually closed in. It's different from the captive. The captive in Babylon, he had a promise. He was told, pray for the peace of Babylon, plant your gardens, you're going to have a home, you're going to have children, and your kids are going to get married out there. But the one who is bound is in prison, and he's locked in, and he can't get out. It talks about that, that there are the mourners, people that are mourning Jesus, that I've come for them. The anointing is for them. People who are mourning are grieving because they've lost something that they loved. A number of years ago, Susan and I were at a conference and heard this wonderful lady speak. And the one key thing I remember that she said, she said, grief is a love word. We grieve because we loved somebody. That's why your grief is real. That's why it's important. That's why in a certain sense, you learn how to cope with it and deal with it. But because you loved and something has been lost, you, you keep that. I'd, uh, the Tunstalls and a number of us uh, a week or so ago were at the funeral of, of, of the youngest child that died in the uh, Plaza Tower School. A young, a young eight-year-old, Cal Davis, who was uh, attended over in a Pentecostalist church in, in the southern part of the city. And it was a wonderful service, but, but a deeply sad service. And, and hearing out of a thousand people, you could hear the sobs of parents. And I was sitting back towards the back and watching at points of poignancy in the service where, where a mother 
because little Kyle was very popular on a soccer team. And all these children are there, his little friends. And, and in poignant moments, you could see a mother reach her arm around a son, squeeze him close. A father did the same because they understood the power of grief and the power of love. Lost hope, lost opportunities. The stranger. Jesus later on talks about this, or Isaiah talks about the stranger a little bit later on. People who, who, are, who, who are relocated but don't have a home. They don't belong. I don't mean they don't have a place to stay. They're not at home. And there are 11 million of them in our society today. And, and here we are with all of this, with, with the gospel message coming to them, saying the Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he's giving me this for them. You catch that? That's who the they are. Well, what's the hope for the they? What's the victory for the they? Listen to how it comes out. That out of those who are poor, Jesus says, I've got good news for them. The poor need to hear, you're not locked in. The poor who feel trapped need to hear, there's good news. You, you, hear, you hear it coming to the brokenhearted that you don't have to live with the broken, shattered relationships of your life. And you're not called to live with the, the compounded power of disillusionment. But you can move beyond all of that and let healing come forth in truth and love going together. See, one of the greatest things God can do for us is shatter our illusions. See, most of us think when, when, when we realize we've been disillusioned by someone, we think the devil did that. No, that's the Holy Spirit. He comes to lead us into truth. And so the next time you find yourself profoundly disillusioned by someone, don't blame the devil for that. Thank God because you're entering into truth. And truth and love sets you free to move beyond brokenheartedness. That's the power of the anointing in your life. You find it happening among the captives. I love the language there that's used because it's actually of the captive who being set free. It's actually the same kind of terminology. In fact, it's the same Hebrew word that, that's translated to run free is also the same Hebrew word that is translated of a swallow. That's a bird. The swallow is free. And it's used in Psalm 84 that the swallow finds its nesting place right in the very presence of the temple of the living God. God cares so much about you. The anointing of God is so great to bring deliverance to all of us that God says, I will take you. And the liberty you will have is that you can fly like a bird in the presence, my holy presence. You find that the bound discover that the prison doors are going to be open for them. You don't have to stay there. The chains can be taken off and the doors are open, not by what we're able to do, but by the power of the anointing that comes by the presence of Christ. We find that the morning discover that, that there's good news for you. The morning discover that, that you're, not, you're not going to have to carry the ashes on your forehead. Your outward countenance will begin to change from the signs of mourning to the signs 
of an outward reality of joy and hope and gladness and a future. You find that the garment of heaviness that weighed upon you and the losses of your life, that garment is not meant to be buttoned on your life. That garment is meant to be blown off by the wind of the Spirit of the living God and the garment of praise come upon you that's light and joyful and hopeful. You find that moving all through this text, that that's the victory that is there for those, the they. I thought about uh, the they, and, and, and with all apologies to all the English majors in here, who are the they? We are they. It's you and me. We're the they. We're the ones who have to walk through it. We're the ones where the promise comes and says that they will rebuild. They will raise up. They will repair the desolation, the broken down cities. They will do that. That's us. That's God's promise to us. Let me close with this picture for you. The, uh, in, in biblical cities, uh, there, there, there's a very interesting dynamic that you, st you, st you still see today. You can see it, and you can hear it in names of, of cities in Israel, for instance. That, you know, millenniums ago, when cities were first built, they would be built in many instances, like on, on a more level area. But over the centuries, either by earthquake or fire and, and often by warfare, the cities would be destroyed and there'd be rubble there. Well, when the inhabitants were able to come back or new inhabitants came in, they wouldn't just take a bulldozer and clear out all that rubble. They didn't have bulldozers to do that. They would remove some of it, but they'd leave a lot of it there. And they would take what they could find of the rubble that was useful, and they would simply begin to rebuild right on top of the rubble. And little by little, that which had been flat starts to rise and rise and rise so that each successive opportunity to rebuild out of the rubble creates what is called a tell. We would call it a hill. But if you dig down in that hill, you find, as you go through the shafts, you find the archaeological evidence of earlier cities that had been there in the debris. And so what had at one point been a flat line now becomes a hill where people continue to build and to live. It, you hear it in the names. They, uh, you know, one of the major cities in Israel is called Tel Aviv city built on this hill this tell now there's something I think very fascinating about all of that and uh, it has to do with the uh, the reality that, that God wants to take the debris of our lives and we've all got it there's nobody in here who has not had some place somewhere in your life where, where there's been desolation and you've not known what you do with that desolation. 
what God tells you, and often you, you can't move forward till you correct what happened there. And so you come to that tell, and you take the places, the old broken stones, that God says use that one because that one was of value. You put it, and then God gives you new stones, what the Apostle Peter calls living stones of what we are different values that God has for us and we get and we start to build over and over and over decade after decade experience after experience we build our life up so that in the words of Jesus our life becomes a city on a hill whose light cannot be hidden out of the desolation and weakness of our lives God promises to rebuild, to repair, to restore, so that he gets the glory out of it. I love the double entendre from Hebrew to English. It's a tell so that we, when we stand on the debris, conscious that it's not because we're better than anybody else, but it's because of the mighty love and power of our gracious God, our good God, that because of that, we can tell. We can tell how great is our God. We can tell. Let me show you the love of a God who forgives. We can tell that his steadfast love never fails. We can tell Jesus Christ is Lord over everything in our lives. We can tell nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. We can stand on our tell and we can tell our God reigns and he has not abandoned us. We can tell. Hallelujah. 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 Julie, can, can we sing, get to sort of prepare our hearts? That song you were singing about God's goodness, that last song there. Why don't you bow your head with me? Lord, this morning, we just come as they. They who bring out of the, the journey of our life poverty, whether of stuff or spirit. We're the they who bring our broken hearts. We're the they who bring our captivity. We're the they who are the mourners. We're the they who sometimes feel like we have no home, strangers. Lord, you come and you bring through through your grace to us personally and through other people and give us opportunities like, like Lord what's happening now to just be anointed once for the sake of those displaced we ask oh Lord now in the tale of our lives the men and women in here will discover your grace is sufficient you know how to take exactly the pieces of debris and use them to build our character, to strengthen our relationships, to draw us in the truth, to bring us to repentance. Because you're good, Lord. 
after these guys are going to begin to sing, in fact, I just want you to stand with me. And as you're singing, if there are any of you in here, you say to Pastor Steve or to me, you know, I'm in one of those places of the tell of my life. There's debris. And I need the wisdom of God to know how do I rebuild? And there may be some of you, you've done that, but you don't know what to do next. And you say, Pastor C, would you help me? Would you pray with me? That God will teach me and show me how to tell of who he is, whether in words or in deeds, how to tell from the tell that he has restored in my life. If that's any of you as you sing, just step out and come down. We'll pray with you together. We'll pray with you. But in the meantime, let's worship how good our God is. by your spirit just continue to make us anointed ones
It's been a privilege to have you join us for this time of ministry. To find more Passion Church resources or to make a donation online, visit www.passionchurch.tv. Remember, you can't live without passion.